Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Welcome, everybody. This is Byron Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. We are excited today because we have Dr. Felicia Wong with us this, uh, this morning. Good morning, Dr. Wong. Good morning. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm excited. I have gotten your book, The Hidden Rules of Race, that you and three other people wrote. Oh, great. Yeah. Happy to talk about that. I've been going through it. It's a lot here, and it explains a lot of things that I have been talking about and wondering about and figuring out how we got here. What are those rules that causes black families to have less wealth than white families or make less money and all of that stuff? Well, let's definitely talk about that. I'm happy to talk about that. I'm happy to talk about cooperatives and some of the things that more traditional businesses might learn from cooperatives. And I'm, of course, happy to talk about the work we do at the Roosevelt Institute. All of that. Okay, we got, we have three hours. <laughs> no, we don't have three hours. <laughs> I, I would love to talk to you for three, but we have one hour. So let's see how much we can get in there. But let me start okay, off by talking about you. Are you Asian American? Yes. How did you get into this world of talking about inequalities, particularly with black race? Yeah, well, I mean, the bigger question, too, is how did anybody end up running a think tank? So that's a question in and of itself. But let me talk about me personally, and then maybe we'll talk a little bit about what has ended up being my chosen profession. So, you know, a couple things. One is that, you know, I grew up in uh, California in the 70s and 80s, and that was really, and my parents were very involved in and thought a lot about Asian American civil rights. In fact, my whole family did. So, you know, my aunt is an activist poet. My uncle is a newspaper, was a newspaper editor. And we all thought about what it meant that Asian Americans were also in many ways segregated or excluded from mainstream white America was more true in the 1950s and 60s when they were kids. But mm-hmm. it was it was a very important part of, um, you know, of of what we talked about in my larger family. Um, and then also um, part of it's also about my dad's family. Uh, my dad grew up in Augusta, Georgia during Jim Crow, um, where Asian Americans. Augusta, yeah, Georgia. he was, you know, most people think about Augusta as like the home of the nationals, you know, like the national, like the golf tournament. Uh-huh. I think about it as the place where my dad grew up during Jim Crow And uh, Chinese Americans were, they were obviously neither black nor white. And so what do you do in that historical, in that situation um, when you don't really fit any of the categories that society or government has sort of used to to label people? And so um, 
you know, my dad and his five siblings uh, and his mom lived in the black neighborhood in Augusta because that's where Chinese could live. They ran a small grocery store. They literally lived in a lean-to on the side of the grocery store, all five of them, or five plus six of them, including my grandmother, in a single room. But the Augusta Town Council um, considered Chinese to be honorary whites. So my dad went to the white schools. He wasn't bused to the white schools. He had to walk to get there. But he he went to the white schools. And so he lived this life that where the lines of race and the rules of race were very present. You know, during the school day, he was with white kids. During the rest of his life, his friends were black kids from the neighborhood, and yet they were neither. So I think that, you know, for me, growing up with hearing those stories, thinking about what that meant for opportunity or lack of opportunity for um, my dad and his siblings, and also for all of their, all their friends they grew up with, Mm -hmm. like that was a big thing. I mean, you know, look, my 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 aunts, you know, ended up, you know, being friends with white girls who dad whose dad were in the Klan. I mean, there's all kinds all of stories kinds of that come out of that part of America. But anyway, so race, I, I think race is always a part of who we are as Americans. It's certainly been part of who, you know, my family is. Um, and it's also very clear to me that the experience of black Americans is in some important ways different than the experience of Asian immigrants, Latinx immigrants. So I think about all of it. Wow. Five, six people in one room. Yeah. Wow. Okay. We had eight people, six, seven, eight, nine, ten people in three bedrooms. With six yeah. kids in one bedroom, a mom and dad in another one, and my grandmother and grandfather up? in Bluefield, West Virginia. Mm-hmm. So oh, yeah. Yep. We were in Appalachia, uh, very much uh, working poor. Uh, father worked on a railroad. My grandfather worked in the mines. Although I never knew my grandfather to work. He was in World War II and got hurt in World War II. And my father was in, I mean, he was in World War One, and my father was in World War Two. And so I grew up and I would have been in the Vietnam War, but neither one of them understood that war. And they said, hey, maybe you all should not go. But it was growing up poor and I had no Asian Americans. We had in high school, we integrated uh, schools in 55 in the third or fourth grade, third grade. And uh, we had one Filipino family in high school. And they passed for white, too. They were very much right. in the white. Right? Did, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I think it was very different town by town. But, you know, there's a whole history of Asian Americans in the South in the 19th and 20th centuries. You know, many Asian Americans, many Chinese Americans came, ultimately first worked on the railroads, mm-hmm. ultimately ended up in towns, where, you know, Southern Pacific, went through the South, right? Um, and then uh, men mostly stayed to... You know, they ended up working, digging canals. Augusta was a town that was, you know, powered by water, powered by canals, and then ended up, you know, owning very small businesses like groceries and restaurants and laundries. So, but of course, the other thing, talking about racial rules, this is a time um, when Chinese, the Chinese Exclusion Act was in force. So this was the 1882 immigration law that said that Chinese, 
Chinese laborers could not come to America and they could not bring their families. They could not, Chinese men could not bring their wives. So very, very, very similar to the kind of immigration politics we see today. But that was, some rules are de facto and some rule meaning they're you know, uh, some rules are de jure, meaning they're on the books. Some rules are de facto, meaning they're sort of societal norms. But at any rate, this was a rule on the books that, that very much and very specifically targeted Chinese workers. So I think about rules in that way, too. Okay, so your your book on hidden rules are those that are not on the books. These are societal norms. Well, we really talk about both in Hidden Rules. The reason we, so in the Hidden Rules of Race, my co-authors Dorian Warren and Andrea Flynn and I really try to ask what are all of the ways in which, well, we start with the puzzle, right? Why is it that even though there are very few or no actual racially segregating rules on the books today, why is it that you see such enormous gaps in not only the income between white Americans and black Americans, but you also see gaps in the um, in wealth, which is really important. Wealth is really, I think of wealth as crystallized history, right? Mm. We can get into the history of it. But wealth, wealth in our country, because wealth can be passed on, wealth is about intergenerational transfer. It's about intergenerational transfer of either plenty or suffering. Um, and so we really have to look at the racial wealth gap in our country, not just the racial income gap. It, um, and so we really started with a puzzle, Dorian and Andrea and I did in this book. You know, why is it that... Um, white Americans and black Americans, even if they have the same level of education, because that's supposed to be the great equalizer, right? Mm -hmm. Black Americans and white Americans at the same level of education, black Americans still suffer worse health outcomes, still suffer worse, you know, um, income. Uh, they have uh, worse levels of um, of. Uh, they, they suffer more from criminal incarceration. Why is this? Why is education really not the great equalizer? So then you go back into the history and you look for rules. They're hidden, even though some of them were on the books in our historical past. And there are all these rules that really kept black Americans and women and Asian Americans, but in the, and, and immigrants and Latinx, you know. But in this case, we just decided analytically uh, in particular, because the Black American experience is so is particular, like let's look at the experience of Black Americans, and we really we really uh, tried to look at all of the rules that literally kept Black Americans out of the quote normal wage labor market, and we also looked at rules that kept them uh, that kept them from getting labor protections. So, for example, um, when President Roosevelt, you know, I run the Roosevelt Institute and the Ro and the Roosevelts did many, many great things. But one of the compromises that Franklin Roosevelt made in uh, 1935 when negotiating and setting up all of the labor laws under the National Labor Relations Act, um, domestic workers and farm workers were not afforded the same labor protections as manufacturing workers and other kinds of workers. So they didn't have the right to unionize. They didn't have the right to organize. And that meant that not being able to be in a union really, 
you know, kind of drops your wages, the research clearly shows drops your wages by 15 to 20 percent annually. So if that's happening, think of how that exclusion, you might be able to work, but you're working as a domestic worker, you're working as a a farm worker, and you can't organize, so your wages aren't going to go up. Mm -hmm. Think of how that compounds over time. So when I say wealth is crystallized history, the fact that black Americans have less wealth, even though that farm worker's grandkid you know, has a high school degree, has a college degree. It is in part because the wealth that has, the, the lack of wealth that has crystallized over time is rooted in that set of decisions in the 1930s to exclude domestic and uh, domestic workers. workers from the from labor and domestic workers who are primarily black mostly black women working for white families so anyway out. those are the <laughs> kinds of things that we try to unpack in the book and those are the things i want to come back to and look at how they all what happened and so forth we have to take our first break but in that not putting domestics and farm workers they also weren't eligible for social security if i recall that's correct that's so, correct that was the other example i was going to give yes the Huge right. impact. And Huge impact. You don't have a retirement fund. Huge impact. Okay, we'll be right back. We'll take our first break and love this conversation. Bank is sponsoring this program to give you information about cooperatives so that you can either start looking them up and buying from co-ops or you can start your own. And today we have the great, great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Felicia Wong of the Roosevelt Institute, talking about the book that she helped to write on the hidden rules of race. And we're talking about the racial rules of wealth, income, education, criminal justice, health, and democratic participation. And Dr. Wong, I got that we talked about wealth and income, but to sort of when you when you look at the bottom of it or what the outcomes are, it really speaks to how well somebody lives and how long they live. All of this That's right. really comes to quality of life and length of life. Right. I, I think that wealth and income are means to an end, and the end ought to be living a, a fuller, freer, more thriving life. Right? Uh, and it's, I do not think that wealth and income are ends in and of themselves. Yes, absolutely. So let's talk about some of these hidden rules so we can get to... Later on in the conversation, we can talk about what are the kinds of things that can change so we can have better outcomes, better quality of life, and longer lives. So what are some of the hidden rules of wealth? We, we hit on that. Well, you know, it's one of the really important things to talk about and think about, and we started talking about this before the break, was is this question of the racial wealth gap. And one of the really pernicious measures 
and I think most people don't really realize that, you know, the average wealth of a white family in this country, so family of four, is something around $150,000. Wealth means everything from the amount of value you've got in your house and your car and maybe in the bank and, you know, maybe in the stock market, although than half of all Americans own stock. So the, for white families, the wealth is about is about $150,000, average wealth. Mm-hmm. For black families and for Latinx families, that is close to $5,000. And for single-head single head of household families, sing, you know, single mom families, single dad families, uh, for black and, and Latinx families, that's negative wealth. Those families tend to owe money. They don't have any, so they've got debts. So you've got to ask yourself, you know, how do you really get there? And I think part of this actually has to do with income. You know, black Americans and women work for, you know, for women, the number is 70 cents on the dollar to men. Um, You see similar kinds of income gaps for white Americans and black Americans. Uh, But also, Uh, The other thing you really see is that you've got to look at the tax code. So the the tax code actually means that these income effects compound over time so that, again, I think of wealth as intergenerational history. It's history that's been crystallized. And so the um, when you have a tax code, that means that wealthy people get their tax less on their capital. They're taxed less on what they own and they can pass on wealth to their kids at a very low rate of taxation. That means that the, their higher earnings then compound over time. Um, so that compound is a very big part of why you see the wealth gap. The other thing, yeah. of course, is housing, which we should talk about. Yeah, we'll talk about housing, but I, I want to go all the way back to this wealth. I want to make sure people understand that when we talk about the average wealth, we're really looking at what people own, called assets, yeah, right. minus assets, what they exactly. owe, called liabilities. Right. So it's, it's this net worth or wealth is how much do I own less what I owe? So that right. the average white family owns 150000 more dollars than what they owe out on average, where a black family owns $5,000 more than what they owe. And if you're a single family head of household, you owe more than you own. You have a negative right. net worth. Okay. I just want right. to make sure people really get yes. that. And thank you for clarifying that because, you know, I think it's really important to think about what that really means for people who live in those different circumstances, right? What does that really mean for a kid who's, uh, if you're, if you are from a kid whose family owns something, right? Has some money in the bank, has a hundred, you know, their house and their car and their bank account together is worth over $100,000. That means they can legitimately think about a lot of things. They can think they might not be able to afford all of a college education these days, but they can afford something. They Mm -hmm. can start to think about that. They can start to think about things like taking a little bit of a risk in their lives. Maybe they could think about taking a few months off to consider starting a business. Maybe they, wealth is power. You know, if you have wealth, you could walk away from a bad job. All of those things are possible when you have wealth. Wealth is power. I'm not talking billionaires. I'm talking, you know, a little bit of money in the bank. That gives you the opportunity to take risk 
And risk is part of what, um, a, you know, part of how the American economy is structured. It structures that people who are risk takers are rewarded. But if you don't have the means to take a risk, right, yeah. then it's really hard for you to be rewarded. So if you are a black family with less wealth or a white or, or any family with less wealth, you are not going to be able to walk away from that bad job. You're not going to be able to legitimately think about helping your kid. You can think about helping your kid get into college, but it's much harder to think about how your kid might be able to pay for that. Listen, um, I got I got what you're saying, though. It's it's power, but it's more than power. It's freedom. When we talk about blacks really yeah. wanting to be free, free from slavery, free from Jim Crow, free from these hidden rules, it really talks about wealth. The more wealth you have, and you have control over your time, and that's what you were talking about, what you can think about. What that's you can right. Do. Yeah, okay. That's right. That's right. That's absolutely right. And, you know, sorry, I'm just going to say one more thing about this. A lot of my friends and colleagues these days talk about, you know, what are the things that make up the components of a of a good human life in today's economy, a, a healthy human life? And they, they talk about thriving and they talk about dignity. We talk about thriving and we talk about human dignity. And really, you are not going to have dignity if you don't have that kind of really basic control over your time. If you are trapped by your lack of wealth in a bad job or in looking for a job that you know is still only going to pay you the bare minimum wage or, you know, even less if you have a if you have a job where you rely on tips. Anyway, so these are the things. Wealth gets really connected to people's basic ability to live freely, as you said. Let me tell you this one quick quote. Uh, Dame Pauline Green, who was a British lady who was in charge of or head up the International Cooperative Alliance, she said on the program once that co-ops help people to come out of poverty with dignity. And I, I like I remember that one very, very good. But it talks about what you just talked about, striving and dignity. How do you get strive and get dignity? And co-ops is one way of doing that. Okay, so this is what we're talking about with wealth. What about what are the hidden rules of income? Well, the hidden rules of income get get back to this thing that we think of as occupational segregation. You know, why is it, and this gets back in a lot of ways to straight up racism, uh, but why? what are the reasons that black workers, black women, and also you can definitely look at other women of color who, who work in like home health care jobs, why is it that... Uh, Black people, uh, black women end up in jobs, very low paying retail jobs, very uh, insecure and precarious, you know, kind of waitressing jobs, home health care jobs that are that are uh, that don't have a lot of security. Why is that? And one of the real reasons is because, and especially just look at the retail sector, is because of occupational segregation. White, if Black workers are much more likely to have white supervisors, and white supervisors tend to um, not promote black workers as well. They tend to not hire and not promote, and so you get this kind of um, this this uh, phenomenon of occupational segregation that then compounds ar- around wealth in all the ways that we talked about previously. Mm-hmm. So you really do have when people think about, oh, who am I going to hire into that next job? Um, who you know who is suited for this? A lot of it does come down to um, these questions of racialized hiring, occupational segregation. Um, 
But then you also, of course, have to look at um, the education side of this as well. Certainly, it is true that um, having a strong educational background is important for getting jobs that tend to pay in middle. Look, unions are important, too, which we could get into. Mm-hmm. But uh, but but. Uh, you know, education is also important, and it is there. It is absolutely unassailable that our the schools in this country that are supposed to educate people for many things, including being good citizens, but you know, healthy, productive adults, but also educate for you know, good jobs. Good jobs. The schools are just not doing uh, a good job of this on this, and our schools are becoming resegregated by race. You know, the federal efforts to really segregate, uh, desegregate schools in the middle of the 20th century, we've seen incredible rollbacks. And the combination of housing segregation and educational segregation, uh, whereby, you know, the New York City has more schools now that are, you know, over 90 percent kids of color than they did 15 years ago. When you and, and those schools tend to get fewer resources, they tend to have teachers who are not as well trained, who don't have as many years on the job. And we've got a, this I'm, is a I'm this sorry. is a system that ends up having income effects. So, yeah. sorry, you asked me about wealth. You turn, we turn to income. Yes, turn income. You get to education. But the I, point I, is, it's really a system, and we that's really what break, our, though. <laughs> I'm sorry because I wanted. We'll be right back to pick up on this. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative, and our guest is Dr. Felicia Wong. And National Cooperative Bank is sponsoring this program, have have been sponsoring it from the beginning six years ago. NCB's mission is to support and be an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members, especially in low-income communities. And this is what we've been talking about. A lot of those low-income communities are people of color and poor whites, but that's what their mission is all about. Dr. Wong, we were talking about education and the relationship between education or poor education and then poor income. Do you want to pick back up there? Well, really what I want to say, we could talk about all these areas. We could talk about education. We could talk about health care. And I'm happy to talk about education. But really the underlying thread that links all of these areas together is these are very deliberate choices that our political system has made and that we as citizens have allowed to be made. It's really important to know that occupational segregation wasn't just an accident. School segre- school segregation isn't just an accident. You know, this the the racial wealth gap isn't just an ac- accident. These this is the result of many accretive deliberate choices, which in some ways is really depressing and disheartening, but in other ways it's kind of liberating because what it says is wait a minute, wait a minute. We could actually make different choices. We could affirmatively integrate our schools. It's not going to be easy, but we could do a better job than we're doing right now. We know in the 1950s and well, 1960s and 1970s, we actually tried. We had a lot of success there. Not as much success as we would have wanted, but we had success. And mm-hmm. so the point is these are deliberate choices, political choices, and we can make different choices. We can. Okay. Let's talk about housing, though, because that's one of the places we create wealth, and that's one of the places we lost a lot of wealth in 07, 08, that we mean black community lost a lot of wealth. Mm-hmm. 
with particular choices with these mortgages. So can you talk to us about the subprime and these mortgages and how that affected families, black families? Well, there's a couple different things going on there. I'll talk about that. We should also talk about the fact that as ta Coates and others have written about, you know, in earlier in the 1930s and 1940s, black families simply could not buy houses. And when they did, they bought houses. You probably know this history from, you know, sort of your own family, friends or experience. But the kinds of mortgages that black families were able to get were in much less favorable terms than white families. Of you didn't get a federally guaranteed mortgage. Yeah, there was risk. a lot more risk, right? <laughs> and, you know, you miss people. one payment and, you know, you're, you're out, you're gone. So oh, those getting a different kind of mortgage, which is also a kind of political choice, right? How we structure mortgages for different people who live in different neighborhoods. Redlining is the sort of formal term. This is also a set of choices. So that's one set of problems. And that kind, those kinds of different mortgages, very high risk mortgages, mortgages that um, loans um, under subprime that were probably that were made to people who didn't necessarily, people were encouraged, encouraged by banks that are predatory to borrow more than they could afford. And so then when the bottom fell out of the market, they they were sort of the canaries in the coal mine. They were the first to lose houses and the last to be able to regain any kind of not only wealth, but even like basic housing security. So, of course, you see the foreclosure crisis. You see people having to, being forced to leave their homes and you see the rise in homelessness. So all of these things are also related. The other thing that I really dislike about that system was that you had to put down $250,000 in order to look at the list of foreclosed houses. Uh, a group of us wanted to create some scatter site and try to keep the people that were already in there that already bought, keep them in and create a scatter site housing co-op. We couldn't even see the list unless we put up $250,000. So the people that bought those foreclosed houses were those wealthy people. And then right. they made all the money, and now they are redoing it. They are selling them on credit and on time, and if somebody misses one, they'll come back and take it again. It's it's just right. happening over and over again. Okay. Right. Well, yep. <laughs> oh, I get angry. Okay. <laughs> Okay. Well, maybe we should talk about cooperatives and some of the better solutions, because I'm really interested in hearing from you. You do a lot of work on cooperatives, how how more democratic, small d, democratic ownership of some of this could, you know, of businesses and, and, you know, could could make a real difference. I'm interested in that. Well, you know, I call it the big D, the co-op, because people are much more involved. If you have 100 members in a co-op, you may have 80, 90, 100 of them being involved in voting. We're in our system of national elections, president elections, you get more, but you may be talking about 42 percent of the people that can vote to get out and vote. So that's I I turn that big deal. Around. Right. I, I completely I just meant not be like a, any political party. <laughs> but yes, the big D, absolutely. Okay. So, And I think a lot of people are interested in, you know, workplace democracy these days and democratic ownership and more power for the people who, you know, who have more of a stake in the system. That's one of the things I'm really interested in learning from you about. Well, the credit unions have played a Really, really great role, particularly with mortgages. But if it's borrowing for a computer or borrowing for a car, 
a credit union that are owned by the member there. It's well, let's go all the way back to the four types of basic co-ops, which, you know, but I, for other people out there, they, it depends on who owns and controls the business. If it's owned and controlled by the employees, it's called a worker co-op. If it's owned and controlled by the people that buys the products or services or uses them, then it's a consumer co-op. And farmers more so than anybody else have used purchasing co-ops. There's some other purchasing mm-hmm. co-ops that where they come together and create a business. And that those people in that business know what they are buying, seed, fertilizer, equipment, whatever. And they become expert at buying. And then the farmers can get a better quality at a lower price. And then farmers have created a marketing co-op or producer co-op. Uh, Lando Lakes, Ocean Spray, uh, Cabot mm-hmm. Creamer, type of those. And they create a business and they become very, very good at the marketing and also adding value to the products. And so they can get their products that they create on a farm to markets that they couldn't do individually. And they can normally get a higher price and reduce the risk of farming. So those are the basic types. Uh, Ace Hardware is a type of a purchasing co-op where groups of hardware companies will buy together. There is a store in Pittsburgh called Ujama, which is a group of black women that have come together. They're artists. They're some make jewelry, some make clothing, some paint, some do woodwork, and they they have started a store. They have a storefront that they can sell their wares, where an individual artist could not do that. But working together collectively, they can do that, and they work in the store. So those are the basic types. And credit union is a type of a, a consumer, the people that put their deposits into the credit union, own the credit union, and they can vote for a board of directors or they can run to be on the board. And then they create the products. And credit unions didn't have these loans because those loans were bad for their members. So they didn't have these supply loans and they didn't have all of these losses. Housing co-op is another consumer co-op, and they also did not have these foreclosures that condominiums and single families did because they didn't make those loans. They're making longer-term decisions and not these short-term profit decisions. I found out about co-ops, Dr. Wong, because I have a property management company, and I started managing co-ops. And these women mostly sometimes without a high school degree, would make very intelligent long-term decisions about their business, their house, their housing, their multifamily housing. And I fell in love with it because of the fifth principle, and that's training, education, and information, so that these everyday people can learn how to run a business and run it successfully working together. Now, everybody doesn't want to do that. What I found out, everybody doesn't want to work together. Everybody doesn't want to share. And some people want to get the bigger benefits if they're greedy or fraudulent or all of this stuff. But for the most part, these housing co-ops have outperformed, not for the most part, they have outperformed apartment buildings, particularly HUD-funded apartment buildings. They just outperform them in every variable they could think of. The problem, though, becomes that some of them fail. And when they fail, I found out this through HUD, that HUD people normally don't like co-ops, except for Wisconsin. They understand them. They know how to work with them. But if uh, they don't understand them, they don't know how to work with them, and one starts to go bad or bad, and it's a political entity, and it makes it harder for them to work with them. But co-ops all the way around, they really, really function because people end up with being able to make decisions. They have power and time. They can decide if there's profit, what to do with that profit. Right. It's phenomenal. Sounds like what you're saying is a couple of different things, though, that, and this gets back to how co-ops promote 
democracy? Because one thing you're saying is that the people who are affected by the decisions, right, Mm -hmm. are the same people who are making the decisions. And so that really means that you get a kind of agency and you get a kind of ownership. You know, you get a kind of business, a kind you get a closeness that is really important in helping people feel like they have power and agency over their own lives. And it gets back to that thing about thriving and living a life of dignity that Mm -hmm. we talked about earlier, because nobody wants to live a life where somebody else is just making all of their decisions for them. So that feels like one really big piece that might go across all the four types of co-ops that you describe. Um, And then the other thing it seems like you're describing is people are making good decisions for the long term, right? Right. That people, that one of the big problems with the kind of, I call it neoliberal uh, capitalism that we have ended up living in in America today, and we can talk about that too, but one of the big problems with this kind of capitalism where most of the, you can also definitely call it shareholder uh, capitalism, where Everything is just, all decisions are just being made for the benefit of the stock price and all because you've got to please the shareholders and that's the only thing that the shareholders know or measure about your business. When you have that level of really distant decision making and the only thing you're being measured on is very short term quarterly profits. When you have that kind of system, of course, you don't end up making long-term investment decisions. Of course, you don't end up making decisions that are good for the health of the company long-term. And so it's no wonder in the current shareholder primacy system, we see very, very, very little business investment right now. So capitalism doesn't work very well, right, when people are not investing for the long-term, when when we're not investing in research and development, when we're not investing in workers, when we're not investing in physical plants. So what you're describing, I think, is a system whereby you do have people close to the ground making longer term decisions. And that just seems smart. Yes. Yes. And um, I got my MBA from Stanford. So I was out in California, too. And I really dislike, resented that all of the decisions were return on investment to the shareholders. I mean, decision, what's the return on investment? And then you look at all of the different options and you'd pick the one that gave the biggest return on investment. And that's why the subprime was so insidious because that gave the biggest return. You get more return for your dollars by getting people into higher houses that can afford paying right. more rent uh, interest than they can afford. And it goes up over time and they're going to lose. I don't know if they planned that, that when they lost and when the everyday person lost their house, that people would get it back and then they could, could go do this again, or at least have it and then uh, do another mortgage on it. So this whole system of capitalism, I don't like. <laughs> I just don't like it. <laughs> it's, it's got too many well, that, fallacies in well, it. Well, let me ask you this. Do you think we're at a political moment where people are starting to see the real flaws in this system of capitalism are willing to think about other ways to organize our economy? Oh, I think so. And I think the young people particularly are are seeing it and wanting a shared economy. Uh, at least that's what I'm seeing and I'm hearing. Uh, we have to take our final break, Dr. Wong. We'll be right back. I'm having so much fun talking to you about this. We'll be right back. Everybody, this is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative, and we have 
Dr. Felicia Wong on the line with us today, having a great conversation about the different racial barriers, the hidden rules of race. And Dr. Wong, we were leaving, we were talking about co-ops. And I want to talk real quickly about a book called Cities Building Community Wealth that the Democracy Collaborative put out. Mm-hmm. And in that book, it talked about Christina, who was in New York. And I don't remember if she was maid service or helping senior service, but she was making $7 an hour. She either helped to form or joined a co-op, and she went up to 20 bucks an hour. A, a lot of that had to do with sharing of, of profits uh, between the, the individual owners and efficiencies in operating it because they're close to the ground, they know what's going on, and they then they can do the work a lot better, a lot more efficient, and planning the work and all of that. But I also like it because going from $7 to 20 bucks an hour, it gave her the freedom we were talking about. And so what she right. chose to do was work less hours and spend more time with her two children, which then means that this intergenerational, what you pass on wealth, where you pass on knowledge and education when their mom is there and you have safety because the kids are coming home to mom and all of this. So it really helps the community. It's a win, 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 win. And that profit then goes to the individual owner, the shareholder who happens to be the member, who happens to be the worker. So this system to me works a lot better. And the reason I get so excited about co-ops is because of this. It's the only system that I have seen that can take new profits, new dollars, and then pass it to everyday people. The capitalistic model will not do that. It's going to make this gap bigger and bigger and bigger. Until right. what's, what's expected is revolution in some kind of way if we do not change this around. So you asked the question, do I think that it's there? I think young people have it. I don't have any sense that our current politicians have it. But if we can get everyday people to get out and vote and get politicians in there that do get this then we can do what New York is doing in Madison, Wisconsin, and put more money into worker co-ops, creating these worker co-ops right. and getting them functioning. Well, I think you do see more movements toward both cooperatives and also other kinds of worker organizing. We're seeing a lot, and I think they, there is there's some relationship between those two. And I think we are in a political moment where people are starting to ask for that. I've been really heartened to see that some leading political candidates have asked for things like or have put out proposals for things like workers serving on big company boards. We can talk about the merits of big companies versus, you know, kind of smaller startup companies. But, you know, to big companies can, if they're not monopolies, um, big companies can serve a real value in yes. our economy, but it's important that those big companies be governed um, in ways that benefit many different stakeholders, not shareholders, stakeholders, and those stakeholders ought to include workers, and one of the ways to do that is put workers on boards. We see workers on boards in Europe, particularly in Germany, and those companies have at least as good and often better economic outcomes, financial outcomes, and you see a lot more worker stability. So that mm -hmm. seems to me to be a win-win, too. Absolutely. Tell me, though, the Roosevelt Institute. So Roosevelt in, the, in 35 and so forth he, with the New Deal, he did a lot of co-ops. Uh, right here in Greenbelt, right outside of D.C., is a 1,600-unit housing co-op that he created. He had created several of these around the U.S., so and he was very much into this cooperative movement. So have you seen that when you're looking at 
the history of the Roosevelt and Eleanor Roosevelt was a very good friend of Nanny Helen Burroughs. So they were very, very good friends. And it seemed like Eleanor, at least from the little history that I've read, was very much into and friends with a lot of blacks in, in the area. Um, oh, yeah. So, Well, I, you bring up such a good point, um, both about the Roosevelts and about the kind of historical moment that they both lived in and helped create in the 1930s and 40s. You know, Franklin Roosevelt was a real experimentalist and a real innovator. So he definitely, you know, the very famous Franklin Roosevelt saying, you know, try something and if it doesn't work, try something else. Right. (laughs) And um, Eleanor very similarly said the way to begin is to begin. And so they were trying to get America out of this malaise, not only financial depression, but also, you know, the depression um, of the 1930s where people felt like they couldn't start anything. Franklin Roosevelt was all about starting things. So he experimented with a lot of things. He experimented with co-ops. He experimented with basically paying all kinds of people to work who wouldn't otherwise have had jobs. Really important when you had 25% unemployment. So, you know, you had the Works Progress Administration that employed artists that, you know, to build many of the buildings that we still, to build and or, you know, draw murals on many of the buildings we still see today. My favorite, my two favorite uh, kind of experiments that FDR had in favor of workers or employing people. He had uh, musicians, like, you know, uh, an effort to employ musicians by the federal government. And there was a national theater project because he believed that music and art and, and, you know, drama were also, we should be encouraging these things as part of the human experience. So these these are really interesting things that Roosevelt did in terms of this experimenting with empowering workers. And then, of course, the most famous is the uh, the Civilian Conservation Corps, whereby now there's a problem there because the Civilian Conservation Corps was only for white young men. So it was a, there was definitely a race problem there. But my father worked in those. Um, he talked about that. Oh, he did? Yeah, I thought in West Virginia. Very much, well, then I might be wrong on my history. I really thought that the CCC was almost exclusively it, yeah, young white men. It may have been almost, but somehow my father was was in it and he talked very well, what did he say about what did he say well, about the conservation corps was it well, one was he got a job a, he had some money that was he huge. got a job right <laughs> that was huge and and then they were uh they were doing i don't know if they were cutting down trees if they were making no, roads planting trees planting trees okay. planting trees he they they turned the dust bowl of oklahoma into uh into verdant forest so they really there, it had an, obviously an environmental benefit in addition to an economic and labor benefit. Well, my father was in West Virginia, so we had planted okay. trees. Well, so they, yeah, it was, they, they, planted, they planted <laughs> okay. uh, they planted trees everywhere. Okay, so but I, I'm I'm just amazed when I walk through Greenbelt housing how progressive they were. They they had little little cups in the, in the front of every house that they put their compost in it. They put their scraps in it, and somebody would come by and pick it up for composting. They were recycling. They they were smaller beds, smaller furniture, smaller rooms that one could live in very comfortably, but not huge and gigantic and everything. So it, it looked like right. they were just really ahead of the game in in designing this this community with lots and lots of playgrounds in it, lots of playgrounds. Well, this was also, you know, the other thing that 
FDR really had. He had a whole history of progressive thinkers and progressive thinking behind him. He famously, FDR had a brain trust around him. And some of those people were bankers and some of those people, you know, were were financial officials and economists. Very famously, he worked with a lot of economists. But some of the other people who were part of his brain trust were part of that the whole progressive movement, right? The, the old, the, you know, the kind of 19-teens, 1920s progressive movement. And those progressive were very much about designing things on a human scale, right? Mm-hmm. Designing urban life so that it worked for human beings. So it is not surprising to me that some of what you, even the details of those designs in a in an FDR era, New Deal era home is small scale, livable, thinking about recycling, thinking about composting. That doesn't surprise me. Yes. Um, we think of innovation today, but we think of innovation in a very, I think, a quite a constrained way. We think about innovation as primarily about innovation to make money, right? Okay. For, again, for its own sake. And we think about innovation, I don't want to, some innovation today is quite good, but a lot of innovation today is being incentivized by, can I build a big company and then cash out? And I think there are there's more experimental, broader ways to think about innovation that, again, can have real human thriving benefits. We only have about a minute left. So what would you like to leave people with? And I already know you love what you're doing, so I don't have to ask you that question. What would you like to leave people with? Well, I do love what I'm doing. And I want to say that there are a lot of people doing what I'm doing. I run a think tank where we try to get these ideas out into the world. We write books. We write reports. We talk to reporters. We talk on radio. We, you know, we talk to politicians. So I love what I'm doing. But it's not just one little think tank, the Roosevelt Institute. It's lots of different people out there. There is a movement of people who believe that we can make a different economy and we can make a different democracy. And that is why I am really excited to be, you know, in fellowship, as it were, Mm -hmm. with a whole bunch of people trying to push in the right direction. Well, everybody out there, I think if you could go vote, uh, get involved, be engaged, then we can have we can create the com- the economy and the community we want. That's right. And if you want to know more, you can go to RooseveltInstitute.org. Take a look at our work. There's lots of great stuff out there. And I want to visit you up to New York one day. Uh, with the Good. research I've done, I'm quite interested. So thank you very much for being on today. Thank you. Thank you. And everybody it's been out there, real pleasure. We'll see you next Thursday. I live cooperatively. 